And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. You'll find it on page 1177 of your pew Bible, if you're following along there, 1177. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Have you ever noticed that wise people are so often full of surprises? This is especially true in poetry and literature, but it's also true in real life. Bright minds and creative spirits often move in surprising ways that only later make sense. I think this is especially the case when a wise and knowledgeable person is also aged. That is, when a man or woman is blessed with not just wisdom and knowledge, but also with experience. In fiction, one thinks of Gandalf the Grey, the wizard of the Lord of the Rings, who's always deep in his own thoughts, or maybe you think of Sherlock Holmes, who was always one step ahead of those around him. Now, these people, real and fictional, are just a distant reflection of God the Father. His ways are endlessly surprising. In the moment, the moment you're living with God, you are quite sure that he is wrong, crazy, or disinterested. And then as things develop, you begin to see that he has written the end from the beginning, as only an author can. The biggest surprise of history, of course, was the cross. Almost no one saw that coming. Paul calls the cross the foolishness of God that shamed the wise. When people imagined God coming to earth, they always imagined a man like Hercules or a hammer-wielding champion like Thor. The dark powers and the wise of the earth were utterly bewildered. Before anyone could recover from the shock, God did something else that amazes me, and I hope it amazes you as well. It is almost as surprising as the cross. After Christ's ascension, God committed the message and ministry of his son to ordinary men and women. A message that angels long to look into was handed over to people who get colds, have marriage problems, and back then died before 55. Once again, the world and the heavens must have been shocked. It began that very first day, the day of his resurrection. The first witness to the resurrection was a woman, Mary Magdalene, who had demons cast out of her. Not a scholar, not a world-renowned artist, not a theologian, not a preacher, a woman who had lived a devastated life. But that was just the beginning. The message was then entrusted to Matthew, the former extortionist and tax collector. The message was given to Peter, the brash, self-confident fisherman who had denied Christ only days earlier. And then, as one untimely born, it was given to the least likely of all, to an inquisitor, to a violent man, a self-righteous man. In fact, a man so self-righteous and so sure of himself that he enjoyed destroying the lives of anyone he viewed as heretic. It takes a certain kind of person to be an inquisitor, and Saul of Tarsus was good at his terrible job. But our God is full of surprises. 
No one knew it at the time, but God had chosen the perfect instrument for the conversion of the Gentile world. For Saul turned Paul would never misread the law again. In Christ, in the shocking meeting, that first meeting with the risen Christ, Paul's desire to be a law teacher would evaporate in the glory of resurrection power. Now let's read together his testimony. And as we do, let each of us feel together, let each of us feel together this morning how surprising our own conversion really is. Let each of us ask in our heart this morning, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? Please stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word. We'll read for context, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you with the apostle, amazed at our own salvation that you so patiently pursued each of us. Give us today, renew in us today, the amazement that we are your children through faith and help us to take for our own this precious confession. We ask that you would do this in each and every life here and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. To my uh, daily shock, and it is daily for me because I'm a pastor, uh, I think to my daily shock and yours, I hope a little bit as well, God committed the ministry of his son to people, people with all their flaws and weaknesses. If we're honest with so much of what we see in the church today, you might have heard some really scandalous things this week in the church. We might be tempted to question God's decision. And 1 Timothy doesn't hide from this problem, by the way. The letter you will recall, this letter, is written to Timothy, who is Paul's spiritual son. Paul had spent three years in the great city of Ephesus, establishing the church in that place. Sadly, though, among some of the elders he himself appointed, some of them had wandered from the truth. In the first 11 verses of our text, we've noted that these men wanted to be known as teachers of the law. And yet, in ignorance, they did not understand the purpose of the law. 
they could not use the law lawfully, as it were. More pointedly, they were undermining the apostolic foundations of the church. What then is God's response to false teaching and abusive male leadership in the church? What's God's response? That should be one of the great overarching questions of our study. What is God's response to abusive, neglectful, or false elders and pastors? Verses 2 and 3 give the answer. To combat the false sons, Paul has sent a true son, Timothy. And verse 3, Timothy is to silence the false teachers. We might expect God to send an angel or a saint, but instead he sends men. It seems weak, maybe even foolish. Doesn't the Lord know what men are like? And yet this is the same God who chose a self-righteous Jew as the great missionary to the Gentiles. Now that is irony. And so he is not in error now. His ways are surprising. I'll give you that. But they are always right and true in the end. Timothy, then, you see, is God's surprising answer to the need in Ephesus, just as Paul was God's surprising answer to the needs of the pagan Gentile world. Timothy's charge, seen throughout the letter, is to live a life of godliness and to teach the truth of the gospel. Verse 11 is probably the ignition switch for our passage uh, today. Timothy is commanded there by Paul to preach whatever is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I, Paul writes, have been entrusted. Writing these words seems to prompt Paul to narrate his own calling. He doesn't do this because he wants to talk about himself, but because Paul's testimony is the perfect antidote to the false teaching. The false elders in Ephesus, verse 7, desire to be teachers of the law. Ironically, once upon a time, Paul was just like them. In fact, his intellect, his effort, and his zeal far outstripped their ambitions. And yet now he counted all that refuse, that he might know the power of the risen Messiah. His testimony then is not written here for Timothy, who knew it well. Rather, it is here for all to read and for Timothy to use in his own ministry. It is, in a way, the perfect antidote to what is going on in Ephesus. And that testimony is still with us today. Even 10,000 miles away and 2,000 years later, Paul's testimony is still a trustworthy saying, and it is still a surprise. Paul's testimony is simply this. It is the glory of God in showing, overflowing, or abounding grace. Look with me then, this morning, at Paul's personal testimony as it's conveyed to us in verses 12, 13, and 14. He writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. 
but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is in a bit of a tricky situation throughout this letter. On the one hand, he wants to say, he has to say very categorically that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he and Timothy, his son, have divine authority to silence the false elders. In the immediate context, the first 11 verses, he's been describing the lawless and misguided ministry of the false elders. In doing that and speaking so authoritatively, someone might be tempted to hear pride and overconfidence in Paul's voice. This is, I can say, one of the hardest things about being an elder or a pastor. You want to speak with clarity and force against all the works of the devil, and yet you want to remind yourself and the person before you that you are completely unworthy of this message. Paul would have been especially sensitive to that concern. After all, before his conversion, pride and self-assurance were massive sins in his life. And so I think it's with great pastoral feeling and under the guidance of the Spirit that he pauses in these verses, 12 through 14, to rehearse for all people to hear his testimony of God's abounding grace to the chief of sinners. Not only was it good for him, it was good for Timothy. Timothy was a relatively young man called to silence elders in the church. Such a calling could go to his head. And so Paul gives his testimony, and notice with me how it unfolds. First, Paul begins by giving thanks for the power that had been given to him. In verse 12, he writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. This is probably, I think, certainly the way every testimony, yours or mine or anyone's, should begin, isn't it? But it's also how his testimony ends in verse 17. You have a glorious doxology or a closing word of praise and thanks to God. I think that's really important. Whenever we give our testimony to anyone, it should be focused on doxology, not so much on how it makes me look, but on how God looks at the beginning and the end. My testimony is actually primarily God's doxology. Specifically, you'll notice that Paul's thanksgiving, his praise, he begins with praise and ends with it. It's directed here specifically to Christ Jesus, or they would have read that as Messiah Joshua. You'll remember that it was Jesus who confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. That is probably why Paul here thanks Christ Jesus specifically and not the Father as he usually does. He's thinking back to that week of his life when he was first arrested, blinded, and then called to be an apostle. So he offers praise to the Lord Jesus who called him and empowered him. But that brings up a problem. Maybe you notice this. Because Paul adds that Jesus found him faithful. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me 
faithful. When did God find Paul faithful? At the time of his calling, Paul was anything but faithful. He was a persecutor of the church, as he will mention in a moment. I think the answer that unlocks this verse is to remember what Paul teaches us about justification by faith. God found Paul faithful because God had made Paul faithful in his son at the moment of his conversion. A few short days later, Paul received the spirit for ministry along with baptism and his calling to go to the Gentiles. Whatever Paul has accomplished, he wants to remind Timothy and the church that it was in the power Christ gave to him. He is full of thanksgiving for this power, this calling which came to the most unlikely person. Paul makes this clear, makes clear where his faithfulness comes from. In 1 Corinthians 15, which Elder Boyajan just read, he writes, By the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Augustine reminds us, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him, renders him worthy. And as a side note, personally, it was a quote just like that from Matthew Henry that first called me into ministry as an 18-year-old. In contrast to this, the false elders are sadly going down a different road, a direction Paul was very familiar with. They sought God's power, but they sought it through the teachings of the law. As we noticed, noted last week, and as Paul explicitly says, the law is great, when used lawfully. The law is brutally efficient at condemning someone and forcing them to Christ. The law is insightful when telling us how we should live and revealing our hearts to us. Paul says elsewhere in scripture that the law is spiritual, it is good, and it is altogether holy. But for all that, the law cannot empower and it cannot save. The law by nature breaks us down. It reveals our hearts. Like Jacob of old, you don't walk away from the law without a limp. No one knew this better than Rabbi Paul. In Galatians 3, Paul makes the same point to the church there as they turned away from the spirit as the source of power and tried to get it from the law. He wrote this, let me ask you only this, he writes, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So then, Paul begins by thanking God for power, strength. At his conversion, Paul received power for his calling. In fact, he received all the power he would ever need. And that power is the Holy Spirit. His whole life, he wanted the law to be written on his heart. That was the great promise of Moses, that one day the tablet of stone 
would be made alive for the believer. For Paul, that empowerment and change came at his conversion as he received the Holy Spirit. But don't miss this. Paul tells us that this experience of the law being made alive and of being empowered to follow God, this experience is not confined to him as an apostle. Yes, Paul did receive apostolic power. In that sense, his experience was unique. None of us have apostolic power. However, he told the Galatians to rely on God's empowerment as well. We too are meant to look back and praise God who strengthened us for our calling in life. Maybe some of you remember, some of you remember those early days of being a Christian. You were like a child depending entirely on God and his spirit. Why have you given that up? Having begun in the spirit, will you mature now by your own strength? And how do you experience the spirit's power? Paul told the Galatians, by hearing with faith. So Paul begins with thanksgiving for the power he has received, something he longed for his entire Jewish life and had now received by faith through Christ. Second of all, having thanked Christ and acknowledged him as the source of any power he has, he openly confesses his condition at the time of his calling in verse 13. Look at that verse again with me. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent man or opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now remember, in the immediate context of this verse, Paul has described, remember last time, he described the lawless person who was under God's wrath, the lawless man. Now he suddenly confesses that he was that person. In the moment of meeting the risen Christ, he realized himself to be completely condemned under the weight of the law, deserving the death that he had given to other people. He unfolds his condemned condition under three headings. He says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was a violent man. Those three things really point us, I think, to one moment in Paul's life, the martyrdom of Stephen, Deacon Stephen. Stephen, you recall, if you know that section in Acts, Stephen is mid-vision, caught up into heaven, where he is beholding the enthroned Christ in his resurrection glory. Stephen's appearance, we are told, even to the people around him, Stephen's appearance is that of an angel. He is like Moses when he descended from the burning bush. And then, think about this, and then, mid-vision, Paul cooperated with other accomplices in stoning him to death. The basis for this brutal execution was that Stephen was a blasphemer. That was the charge. The Romans normally did not allow the Jews to simply do religious killings. So the charge of blasphemy was needed to rile the people up and possibly excuse this unlawful act. Now this should sound entirely familiar to you if you watch international news. How do Muslims execute Christians today in the Middle East? 
they accuse them of blasphemy. Such a charge stirs the people up to commit atrocities and encourages the government to look the other way. That was Paul. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent religious fanatic. Stephen, however, was just the beginning. Paul also tried to get Christians to blaspheme the name of Christ. In the book of Acts, Paul describes his method as an inquisitor, his method of persecution this way. Listen, this is from Acts 26. He said, And I punished them, that is, Christians, often in all their synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul not only blasphemed Jesus, he made his mission to intimidate believers into cursing Jesus' name as well. Cursing Christ was offered as the only way for these Christians to evade punishment. The Romans, if you know your history, did the same thing. At such a moment, you may recall the famous words of John's disciple Polycarp, when he was asked to curse Christ, he said, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no harm, and how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Despite his horrible sin, there was one silver lining, if you will. Paul did these things in ignorance. He was not like those who had recognized God's testimony and repeatedly rejected it. This did not mean that he was innocent. He was not innocent. But it did mean that he had not blasphemed the Spirit. In other words, he had not realized that Jesus was the Messiah and then did this anyway. Rather, he was in ignorance. The Old Testament itself makes this distinction in Numbers 15. Here's what uh, Moses wrote in that chapter. You shall have one law, writes Moses, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. So Paul is not saying that he deserved God's mercy. Rather, that despite his Pharaoh behavior, he was not a Pharaoh. Pharaoh had seen massive miracles, and he knew full well that he was opposing God. There was no hope for him, hardened as he was. Paul, however, was raging in profound ignorance. Maybe this is the idea that stands behind one of Jesus' most famous statements when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The stoning of Stephen was not something Paul could have ever forgotten. If you think you are haunted by your past sins, imagine Paul's own mind and heart. He could close his eyes and still see that moment and others like it. But God's mercy to him had covered even these horrors. If that were not the case, he could never have had the ministry he had. God brought him very quickly to a place where he could say, yes, I did these things. Yes, these things are true of me, and yet I received mercy. Can you talk that way about your past with such honesty, calling sin, sin, but also resting in the mercy of God?
An old professor of mine uh, from many years past used to give this humorous advice. He said, when you tell your testimony to someone, so our three men in training, your testimony of the church is coming up, so here, take note. Uh, he said, don't get up to give your testimony and say, we used to get so drunk. We used to get so wild. We used to have a, such a good time and then go very somber and say, and then Jesus took all that away. Paul doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? And we shouldn't either. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. Our sin made us miserable, didn't it? And it hurt everyone around us. And part of our testimony is acknowledging it. You know, there are no small sins. So covenant kids, those of you who are like me, you raised in the faith, you don't have a moment of conviction. I, do, I don't have a conversion. I've known Christ my whole life. I don't remember a time without him. I want to talk to you guys for just a second. Look, I didn't sleep with anyone before I was married. I never smoked a cigarette. I never did drugs. I was around people who did these things, but I was spared. But listen, you covenant kids, my disinterest in the things of Christ, my daily disinterest in God's word was a blasphemy. And so is yours. My upbringing, because I had what I had, only intensified my guilt, for I was not ignorant. You see, just like you, Jesus was saying to me every day of my life through his word and my parents, he was saying, I am the best. I'm the reason you're here. I am the glorious one. And I was bored. I was disinterested, just like some of you are right now. And my boredom was an abomination. It makes me shudder. It makes me tear up. To be in God's church and to be lukewarm about Christ is a dangerous and terrible sin. You see, every testimony, whatever your testimony is, like Paul's, it has this element. We all say, we all should say, I once was like this, but I received mercy. Lastly, and maybe because Paul was a little bit at a loss for words, we have the glorious verse 14. Look at it there with, you, with me in the text. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Although accurate, the Greek is uh, better, uh, where the first word of this verse actually in Greek is just the word abounding, running over, like it just kind of came out of Paul's mouth. This unique word, overflowing, abounding, was the grace of God to me. It's what was in David's heart when he wrote, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. The grace of Jesus was so great, so overwhelming, that it drowned all his sins. The trauma of watching angelic Stephen slowly beaten to death by rocks was finally lifted. In its place, a tidal wave of faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Instead of self-righteousness and violence, Paul grew into a life marked by the love of Christ to sinners and the love which Christ creates in sinners. Maybe he was just overwhelmed, and so he said, it abounded, it overflowed, it was big. 
So you see, there was no exaggeration when he later wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's testimony was one of total transformation, a transformation that could only be described in the words of rebirth. He died that day and was reborn. This was the power of the resurrection in him. This is what the false elders and so many today are missing. For so many, especially in our day, Jesus is just a guide, a wise moral teacher of the law. But for Paul... And for those who are here today as believers, Jesus is an ocean of love and grace that drowned our old self and filled us with faith and love. And in doing that to Paul, it is just here that once again, the story of mankind takes a turn no one could foresee. Here is another surprise, that such a man would become the missionary to the Gentile world, that a man full of self-righteous contempt for anyone outside his beliefs, a man who was an inquisitor, that such a man would turn the world upside down for Christ. We have to say with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This very personal testimony of abounding grace is still being used today by God to bring people to himself. It was these very verses that we just read that John Bunyan selected for his own testimony. He entitled his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And as I discovered this week, it cannot be accidental that in Pilgrim's Progress, it is these verses from 1 Timothy that finally brought the character hopeful to saving faith and rest in Christ. You see, at one level, the surprising work of God here is unique. Paul's story is dramatic. And yet from another perspective, it is ordinary, common even, because not one of us should be here today. If you don't feel that, if you don't know that, then you're probably not a Christian. Or maybe you have temporarily lost the wonder of your own salvation story. Maybe today you need to hear your own testimony again. Maybe you need to hear that voice inside you that still whispers in wonder, Jesus chose me, even me, even me. He's full of surprises, isn't he? And so let us offer him our lives and our praise. For in our flesh, we are so wicked, we could have stoned an angel. But in Christ, we have received grace upon grace. And where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, to every believer here, restore even this hour the joy of their salvation. They might see how you in the past worked in surprising, miraculous, and powerful ways, how your grace abounded to even the worst of sinners. Help them to see that in their own life and to preach it to the world. And to anyone here who does not know you, may they take hope from this and turn to Christ, knowing he has grace sufficient to cover all their sins. This I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.